just setting ourselves up to record here. So without further ado, welcome to the, uh, the Tech Connect Sales Peer Group, our first online. I know online is a little bit different in terms of connecting, but uh, please feel free to ask your questions as you go along. So I will turn it over to, uh, Pete, or to Hamza right now. Okay, thank you so much, Kelly. I'll go ahead and uh, share my screen here um, and let me know if you are having any trouble seeing the screen. It should all be okay. And I'm just seeing some people are uh, chiming in on the chat there. Okay, good stuff. Uh, all kinds of different roles here, sales and marketing, CEO, so on. Okay, perfect. Um, Okay, so the topic for today is, you know, what are the five keys top sales performance? And, and what I'm going to show you, share with you today is uh, uh, research-based uh, in terms of uh, what did Rain Group find? Because Rain Group is an organization I work with, um, and uh, I do a lot of training with, the, with the Rain Group. I do a lot of facilitation corporate workshops. Uh, and we leverage the training that uh, Rain Group has done in terms of what is it that really separates the top performing organizations than, uh, versus the rest. So it's um, you know, very scientific in terms of the kind of research they do. And we're going to share with you here what uh, were the findings from some of their latest research into uh, top sales performing organizations. Because I believe you're all here because you want to learn a little bit about what is it that, that you know, separates the best from the rest. So we'll get into that. So just uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, a little bit of background on myself, uh, you know, over 15 years of experience in B2B sales and marketing uh, led to uh, my work, um, uh, particularly in the aerospace sector, led to over $5 billion in sales. I've had experience in all kinds of um, uh, diverse industries from aerospace to telecom to professional services, tech, and all that good stuff. Um, also a registered corporate coach, uh, business coach, and um, you know my whole thing is about bringing diversity of ideas to different sectors uh, so that people can raise the bar in terms of their performance. So what we're going to talk about today are um, essentially I'm going to share with you uh, based on the research, based on the evidence that we have, I'm going to share with you one big idea on what is this one big thing that separates the, the best performing organizations from the rest? And what are the five uh, uh, different components of it? What are the five key components of it? <clears throat> so as we go along here, uh, we'll fill this in and you'll get a sense of what that one big idea is and then what are those five components that, that uh, constitute it. So a little bit of background on the research itself. Uh, so they did research on uh, you know, close to 500. We had close to 500 uh, participants in 26 industries. It was across the different geographies. Uh, you know, obviously, Americas was very well represented, uh, but we had uh, other organizations around the world as well. And, and from a revenue perspective, um, really across the board, we had uh, you know, representation uh, from companies that had less than 10 million all the way to companies that had uh, a billion or more. And, and the key thing was the findings that we had were, were the same. 
regardless of the size of the organization, regardless of where they're located, and regardless of industry. So these are, you know, kind of uh, principles that uh, apply across the board. Um, and how did how did Brain Group define top performers versus non-top performers? Well, uh, these were the different factors they looked at. What was the win rate? When I talk about win rate, uh, what we're talking about is of the uh, off the quotes or proposals that you put out, um, what percentage do you actually win? Right, and a uh, a win rate of forty percent or more is um, is pretty darn good. Uh, obviously, the higher the better, but uh, the top tier is kind of 40% plus. Um, the other aspect they looked at was that uh, these top performing organizations met uh, challenging sales goals. So they didn't have low quotas or low targets. They had actually pretty, you know, pretty uh, challenging sales targets that they actually met. And then the other aspect was, you know, uh, not selling for the sake of selling and, you know, in terms of volume, but also are you getting the pricing? Are you getting the margin? Uh, are you able to charge a premium for uh, your products or services? So those are the three areas uh, in terms of criteria that, um, you know, designated that got allowed an organization to be designated as a top performer or not. Um, so I just want to jump in there. When you're talking about meeting challenging sales goals, are they um, are they ones that they've set a little bit higher, or are they ones that are challenging in terms of maybe the standard of what everybody's doing? And then in terms of premium pricing, is that that they're maybe charging more than what the average in that industry is, or is that something you're going to get to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of your uh, great questions, Kelly. So in terms of uh, met challenging sales goals, so this is uh, in relation to uh, their peers. And what they were looking at was, um, you know, in terms of, you know, not just a 5% increase in sales this year versus last year, right? Uh, they, they looked at, you know, what really were they able to accomplish in terms of maybe perhaps even entering new markets that they had never participated in before, uh, you know, really having stretch goals, you know, from a revenue perspective um, that are, you know, up and above like what other, other, other peer organizations would normally do. And then in terms of premium pricing, what that was all about was, yeah, I mean, compared to your peers, are you essentially charging uh, and able to uh, get away with charging a higher price versus your peers and, uh, actually still win deals, right? So, so that's what they were looking at there. Does that answer your question, uh, Kelly? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah, and if you have any questions that, you know, for the rest of you, if you have any questions as we go along, feel free to, to unmute yourself and, and jump in. Okay. So um, what they also looked at was, you know, performance across uh, what, uh, sales, uh, what Rain Group has developed, uh, which is called the Sales Performance Wheel, right, which looks at all these different factors uh, from the organizational perspective all the way to the people perspective. So from training all the way to operations and strategy and enablement and so on. Um, and what they were, were finding was that the uh, top organizations were really good at doing these things, right? Driving maximum value, being excellent at maximizing sales to existing clients, 
their revenue growth potential was, was enormous. They, they had leaders who prioritized sales effectiveness and they had uh, effective leadership. So those were some of the things that they found in terms of uh, the, the organization that met the criteria I talked about earlier. So here's the question for the group. Uh, what do you think the number one strategic factor is that most, uh, that's most common to top performers? So I'd like you to put in the chat what you think it is. Of these, uh, of these options, what do you think it is? Is it driving maximum value? Is it being excellent at uh, maximizing sales for existing clients? Is it uh, having great current level of growth? Is it uh, you know, effective leadership? What, what do you think it is? Yeah, just put in the, the letter for the answer you think it is. David thinks it's B. Give it another 30 seconds or so. Okay. Well, let's see what it is. It actually was A. So for those of you who said A, you could pat yourselves on the back there. Um, yeah, it was really around uh, driving maximum value. That was the number one strategic factor separating top performers from the rest. And you can kind of see from the chart here that um, you know, the top performing organizations um, you know, were the ones that where they were most likely to agree or strongly agree to, um, you know, the, in terms of being top performers, that they were organizations that drove maximum value. So the other aspect was obviously leaders prioritizing developing sellers to be valuable and then being able to grow revenue value-driving organizations were able to do all of that in space, right? And they were the ones that had much higher win rate, uh, 54% versus 45%. Now, you might not think that that difference is, is huge, uh, but if you think about it in terms of what is the number of opportunities, let's say there was 100 opportunities, winning 54 of those opportunities, and those could be million-dollar opportunities, versus only 45 of those opportunities. I mean, that's huge, right? That's, that makes up for a huge difference there. And then the other thing that, um, uh, you know, value driving organizations, the other way that they were different was that uh, they had less undesired turnover, right? And we'll talk about what are some of those factors that, that affect turnover. Um, obviously, in the times we're in right now, there is going to be a lot of turnover just given the, the, given the um, situation with COVID. But um, for any organization, you know, the key thing is they want to retain their, their top and, and best performing talent. Um, and uh, they want them to be you know, producing to, to the maximum extent. And if you have your top people stay with you, you have the best talent, then chances are you're gonna have the best results. So really the, the one big thing was really become a value driving sales organization where everything is about delivering value and particularly from a sales perspective. And one of the components of it is obviously motivating 
motivating your team, whether you sell yourself. So, you know, if you're, you're a seller, then you obviously need to be motivated uh, and you need to try and keep yourself motivated. If you lead a team, then you obviously need to motivate your team and you need to keep them motivated. So a big part of that is obviously culture. What kind of culture does your organization have? Um, and you can see in terms of value driving uh, organization, they, they, they have people who would agree to the fact that their culture actually supports motivation. You know, I'm, uh, I'm only surprised that that's not 100%, but it's pretty darn close. And uh, the other aspect would, in value-driving organizations, people in sales roles uh, actually actively pursue top performance. They're not coasting. They're actually trying to push, you know, push the boundaries uh, and get as high as they can in terms of uh, their performance. And then there's also the aspect of how are we leading and managing our people and, and management, I think, is one of the key uh, aspects of performance. How do, we, how do we hold our people accountable? What kind of targets do we set? And how do we you know, maintain their motivation, especially in times like we have today, uh, where all kinds of things are going on, everything. It's kind of like the world is turned upside down. How do we really maintain morale and, and motivation in this kind of situation. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do these days. So um, one other aspect of motivation is um, we, this, this comes from a study uh, that was done uh, at Yale where they studied uh, over 11,000 uh, West Point graduates and they looked at their performance. And then what they wanted to figure out was what, what's really driving their motivation and what is driving the motivation of the top performers versus everybody else. And what they found in this study was that you had uh, some, some cadets that were, had a, a very strong internal drive. Uh, so they, had, uh, they were motivated internally uh, by a sense of purpose by a sense of mission, by a sense of wanting to accomplish something. Uh, so they had a higher, I would say a higher, almost a higher purpose for, for why they wanted to be uh, you know, at West Point. And then there were others who were kind of more extrinsically motivated um, and to say that they felt that, okay, being at, being distinguished at West Point would help them, um, you know, from a status perspective, it would look great for them. Uh, it might open up more opportunities for them. Uh, they might be able to get paid more if, you know, they, they have that, you know, um, that aspect. So there, there was more of an extrinsic motivation for other cadets. And what they found was it was the ones that were more intrinsically motivated and had that sense of mission, that sense of uh, purpose uh, that were actually, you know, far more motivated uh, and obviously performed even better than, than the others. So it just goes to show the, the importance of motivation uh, and the critical aspect that, that it plays, you know, how it plays a role in, in you know, and we're all human, right? So uh, in, in the work that we all do, it's just keeping motivated is, is the key thing. And so the, the finding here is you want to have a sense of purpose. You want your people to have a sense of purpose. You want them to feel that, uh, there's a reason that they want to come to work every day. There's a reason they want to do what they, what they do. 
there is kind of a higher meaning to what they do other than just being like another cog in the wheel. And so there was another study, I think this one was conducted uh, at Harvard, and um, you know, what they looked at is what, you know, for salespeople, what is it, what are the different factors that, that drove their motivation? And these were the four factors that came up, task clarity, inner drive, compensation, and, uh, and sales management. So now I'd like you to tell me, what do you think the number one factor is? Of those four factors, what do you think the number one factor is that had the greatest influence on sales motivation? Just put your answers in the chat. I'm seeing some B's, some A's. I'm surprised nobody's saying C. That's often an answer. People think compensation is a huge factor for uh, for sales motivation. Okay. All right. And the answer is A, task clarity, right? Uh, task clarity is is huge uh, in terms of its impact on, on motivation, but all of these other factors do play a role. You, know, you can't say compensation does not play a role. Compensation absolutely does play a role. It just doesn't play as big a role as most people think it does. Uh, having inner drive, again, is, is really important. We talked about that. Uh, but coupled with that, it's really having a clear um, you know, activities and tasks that you have to do that uh, most influenced sales motivation. And sales management also has a, a role to play as well. So if you wanna look at uh, what is the variation in motivation that was explained by these different factors, you can see the task clarity was obviously number one by a big margin, explained almost a third of the variation. Inner drive was, was a second. Uh, 20%, again, pretty, pretty significant. Compensation, surprisingly, was was just just north of ten percent in terms of um, you know, explaining the the variance in, in motivation, um, and and sales management didn't have a, really a huge impact, but I would argue that uh, you know sales management is really important in creating the culture and driving that task clarity as well as the inner drive uh, that salespeople would have. So task clarity, what that equates to is being focused. If you know what you need to do, then you need to focus on getting it done. So the key thing that, you know, that, that relates to is the whole concept of GIA, which is the greatest impact activity. We all have lots of things that we need to do, right? Whether you run a business, whether you're in sales, whether you're in marketing, there's lots of different tasks to be done. Uh, what the exercise here is, is really all about, and, and when we do training, this, this is actually one, uh, one of the workshop exercises that we do, is we get people to work on what is their GIA, which is what is their greatest impact activity, which is to say what is the activity that um, you've spent some time and effort on it will produce the greatest results for you. And then building an action plan for doing that. Um, and that is, that is really what, what drives 
the performance on actually completing the tasks is having clarity on the task and then having an action plan. So uh, in relation to that, what, here's another question. So what percentage of workers would you, would you say, would you estimate would be, um, would say yes, that they're distracted each day? We have some A's, we have some E's, we have some C's. Okay. And the answer is E, 95%. 95% of workers are, are distracted each day. And how much time do you think, on average, people are distracted? Is it 30 minutes? Is it an hour and a half? Is it two and a half hours? Yeah, so it was actually two hours. So on average, two you know, two people are distracted for two hours a day, right? So uh, if you consider, uh, let's call it an eight-hour workday, and what percentage of that? That's roughly a quarter of their day, right? A quarter of their day where they're distracted. What's that going to do for results? So once you have task clarity and you have an action plan, it's really around execution. The key thing is how do we execute, given the fact that we know that we are very prone to distraction, all of us are prone to distraction, uh, and typically people tend to be distracted for as much as a quarter or maybe even more of their daily work time. So how do we execute? Well, very often people say, well, you know, I just need to get good at doing a lot of different things, right? I need to get good at all these different tasks. Everything needs to get done. Um, so I just need to get, be better at multitasking, right? Get more done in, in the same amount of time. Um, but the research actually shows that uh, multitasking is is bad. It's very bad for you, um, and it actually makes you uh, dumber. <laughs> so um, the research actually shows that when you multitask, your at your your IQ actually goes lower, right? Uh, it's the same effect that stress also has on the brain is when you're stressed and when you're really upset, your, your, it lowers your IQ. It, it takes the uh, prefrontal cortex, uh, which is the aspect of your brain that has to do with uh, planning and thinking and, and uh, really analyzing, and it takes that offline. Uh, and you're dealing with the reptilian or, or the, the limbic brain, which is uh, – which, which, uh, again, does not help you make the best decisions. So multitasking has uh, very impact, negative impacts on us. And um, if you if you do multitask, then um, you know it basically drives up your impulsivity. And the fact is, when you're impulsive, you don't make very good decisions at all. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so St Stephen asked, uh, what about, uh, I guess you're asking, what about marijuana and, uh, and multitasking? Well, I've never tried that myself. So if anyone wants to try that and let me know, uh, I'd be interested to see what the result is. Um, um, okay, so, and then the other aspect is uh, we're always getting interrupted. So not only is it, you know, do we have a lot of things that people feel like they need to, to get at, uh, lots of different tasks that they, they need to get done at the, pretty much the same time, but they're also getting super interrupted, right? So we have all these notifications on our phone, all these, all these uh, tools and, and um, uh, applications and all that stuff. Uh, we have uh, like um, our, uh, um, what you, would you call it? We have uh, Facebook, we have Slack, we have email, we have text, we have, you know, LinkedIn, we have all kinds of things that are clam notifications that are clamoring for our attention, right? And um, the, the, the challenging part is that uh, these, these devices that we have, um, they, actually, um, they actually initiate uh, or activate the, the reward pathways in our brain. And, and that's why we're all addicted to our phone, right? Because we, we have the the you know basically we can't go a day or even a minute or a few minutes without checking our phone because we want to get that dopamine rush from uh from seeing what the next notification is and who who liked our post and you know uh, who shared our post and who commented and all that kind of stuff so that that is obviously a big challenge that we're having much more so today than we would have even had a couple of decades ago i mean the world has really changed in that respect so it's made it even harder and uh, the research kind of bears out that, um, you know, even momentary, even small interruptions can derail our train of thought. And I've actually seen other research that says that when you are distracted, when you are interrupted um, and you take your mind off of one task to do something else, it can take you up to 20 minutes to get back to where you were before you got interrupted. So just think about that, right? Every time you get interrupted, it takes you 20 minutes just to get back to where you were before you got interrupted. Like how much are you really going to be able to accomplish uh, in, in your workday? And then also interruptions, no surprise there, but you make more mistakes when you get interrupted. So, you know, what did the research show uh, in terms of value driving organizations and their differences? Well, well they were really good at managing their time focus and personal effectiveness. So one of the things that we do at Brain Group is uh, we do this extreme productivity um, or sprinting into the zone, what we call sprinting into the zone. And what that's all about is how do we really minimize distraction and just focus on this, just one planned activity. Right, and what it typically looks like is we start off with this, with what we call a 20-minute sprint. Right, so it's blocking off your time. Okay, let's start with a 20-minute block. Right, and you say I'm just going to do this one high-impact activity. And for salespeople, your one of your top high-impact activities is going to be prospecting. It's the one that nobody likes to do, but it is the one that will, and if you do it right, will yield yield the best results. So. If you were to say, I'm going to spend these 20 minutes and I'm going to make all these calls, right? all these prospecting calls, right? 
and uh, you minimize all distractions. You shut off all the notifications. Um, you know, do not disturb. You put a do not disturb sign on your door if you have one. Um, and you just shut everything out and you just focus on that one thing, right? And this is transformational. If you actually do that, you will find that you get a heck of a lot more done in that 20 minutes than in a typical, you know, one to two hours, right? That is how powerful this is. And it's because you are not allowing yourself to get um, interrupted. You're not allowing yourself to get distracted. You're able to just think through your activity. You have an action plan. You have task clarity and you have focus, and now you're able to just sit and execute. So obviously a variety of tools you could use to help you with this, and there are apps that will uh, temporarily suspend all, all notifications, uh, and you can set a, an amount of time for it to do that. Um, there's, uh, in terms of timing yourself, the egg timers, and there's other tools like Toggle and Rescue Time and stuff like that. So there are, there are tools out there. To, to help us kind of focus amidst the, the, the distraction and all that. But the key point is find some method that works for you. And if you don't know what works for you, try different things and see what works. But the whole idea is allow yourself that, you know, a finite amount of time where you're super focused and not distracted, where you're allowed to be super focused and not distracted. Okay. So, so here's the challenge, right? I want you to just pick an important activity. Think about what, what that would be for you in your context, and, you know, depending on what your role is. And I would like you to just put it in your calendar. You know, set a time in your calendar for when you're going to do that one activity. And actually put it in there. And then what I want you to do is do it, right? So then your calendar, when that time comes up, no distractions, just do it, get it done. And then just let me know, how did it go? Okay, so that's your challenge. So the uh, other question I wanna ask you is, um, what do you think you know, for this question, the majority of sellers at your organization are excellent at driving and winning their most important high-stakes sales opportunities. What would you answer to this? Um, you know, some of you are a team of one in terms of sales. So you are the uh, you are the basically sales and marketing organization for your for your business, and that's fine too. Uh, where would you, you know, put yourself on this scale? Where, where would you, what would you say? What, how would you respond to this question? Okay. okay. I'm seeing a variety of different answers. This is interesting. Okay, so one of the aspects that we've seen in our research that drives performance is coaching, all right? So 
whether you are a team of one, uh, whether you have a team of 10, 50, 100 sellers, uh, it's finding the time to either coach or be coached, right? So uh, even if you are a business owner or if you are uh, basically responsible in your organization for sales, but you're the only person, um, it is finding uh, ways to get uh, really coached on, on certain key activities. And particularly with a team, if you manage a team, it's uh, the, the value-driving organizations were really good at taking time to effectively coach their people, right? And uh, I've seen lots of results that show that um, coaching can have a tremendous impact um, you know, from an ROI perspective, like you can have three to four times uh, R, three or four X ROI uh, if it's done effectively, right? And so the, the value-driving organizations take advantage of this, right? And it's, it's really key in driving performance. So the fourth aspect is, is really having um, a system where you have, you're, you're not working in a silo and you're being supported, and you're being supported to make the results to, and you're being held accountable and you're being coached to, uh, to accomplish the goals that have been set. And so as a result, higher, higher, uh, or value driving organizations reach that higher rate. The number one sales skill that they had was driving and winning sales opportunities, right? And this is where coaching can be really, really effective is um, we're all, I believe we're all in B2B sales. I haven't seen all your organizations, but I believe all of us are, uh, to one extent or the other, we're in B2B sales. So we're selling into other organizations. And B2B selling can be quite complex. It can involve long, long sales cycles. I mean, I, uh, I, I guess in the aviation industry, we're king at that because we, you know, we had sales cycles that were uh, multi-year sales cycles, right? I was involved in, in a WestJet campaign that was four and a half years. Um, and, and having a systematic way to drive and window sales opportunities uh, has a huge impact on your win rate, right? In fact, it was the number one sales skill that uh, differentiated top performers from, from everybody else. The other aspect of it is having uh, checklists. So there's, I don't know if you've, any of you have read this book, but it's a book by uh, a person named uh, Atul Gawande, and it's called the Checklist Manifesto. And the key finding that he had was that, you know, even for, you know, whether we're talking about doctors and, you know, I'm a pilot myself, so, um, you know, I can attest to this. Uh, but, you know, virtually for, for, for the different roles that we have, there are aspects where checklists would be super, super useful, uh, even for things that we feel are routine. Um, and they can have a huge impact on the quality of the work that we do and making sure that we don't make uh, mistakes that can hurt us later on. So I highly recommend that book. But then the key finding is that you have, you need to create a, a kind of structure and have systems and, and checklists to make sure that you are uh, able to accomplish your tasks in the most efficient way uh, possible. 
And when we talk about, um, you know, driving and winning, winning sales opportunities at Rain, these are the different things that we focus on. We know that uh, if um, a sales team, let's say, is working on a particular opportunity and they miss one of these components, chances are they're going to lose the deal, right? So what this involves is, you know, who are the people that we need to know in the organization and, you know, you reach out to or build relationships with, what are the needs of that organization, what is the value case for uh, what we have to offer, who are our competitors, what are they doing, and then what is our plan for advancing the sale, you know, and when we, we work with sales teams, we do this thing called the win lab, right, and the whole idea behind a win lab is to really get the key, you know, internal stakeholders uh, within our organization aligned and, and kind of working together and kind of brainstorming. And we have a whole structure for it uh, for actually producing results uh, with that particular account. And the end, the end point of that WinLab is coming up with an action plan uh, and holding people accountable to it with uh, who is going to do what and by when, right? And, and th this is all kind of reinforced. This should all be reinforced within the structure of an organization uh, to make sure that we're holding our people accountable, we're getting the right things done when we have the right people on uh, working on, on each opportunity. And, you know, we talked about value. Um, at the end of the day, you know, our point of view is that if you can't answer these four questions for your prospects or, or, or clients, particularly if you want to sell your existing clients more, if you can't if, they, if you can't answer these questions, if they can't answer these questions, chances are you're not going to get the deal, right? And these four questions are why act, why now, why us, and why trust. And at Rain Group, we have a, um, you know, when we build value propositions, um, there's a three-part structure to it. And we say that you need to resonate, you need to differentiate, and you need to, you need to substantiate. And if you do that right, you will be answering all these four questions, right? So uh, resonate is all about why act and why now, right? If you resonate with your prospects' needs um, and you can message it really well, then you'll have the why act, uh, which is the answer to why should I take action and why should I take action now? Because if there's no urgency, chances are the decision is going to be pushed off, right, or never made, right? So you need to build, have a sense of, of, of urgency in terms of timing. So why act, why now? Differentiate is why us, right? So there's lots of other companies that can claim that they do the same thing that you do. How do you differentiate in the marketplace? How would you uh, basically uh, have, how would you want your, your prospect to answer this question? Why would you choose us? Why would you choose to work with us? You have other options that you could go with. Some might even be cheaper than ours, but why would you choose to go with us, right? And then the fourth question is, why trust? So we, in our, in our organizations, what we do, what we say, we're all making claims. You know, we can, you know, improve your productivity by 20%, right? We can increase your revenue by 80%, you know, whatever it is. Why should our prospect or even existing client trust that we can do what we say we can do. How are we going to substantiate that? That's the third leg of our stool, right? The resonate is the first leg, differentiate is the second leg, and the third leg is uh, substantiate, right? 
miss any of those, it's just like a three-legged stool. If any one of those legs is missing, it's going to topple over. So this is key and very fundamental for value-driving organizations, which is kind of the big thing, right? That's the one big uh, concept here is to become a value-driving organization, you need to focus on value, right? And by focusing on value, right, you will have a very strong, you need to develop a very strong value proposition that answers these four questions that uh, any buyer is going to need to have answered before they, they can choose you to work with you. And so as a result, you know, the, the value driving organizations are actually able to capture higher margins. They're able to sell the same kind of product or service, but at a, at a higher margin than everybody else. So we talked about WinLabs. Um, now you can see kind of the differences between the value driving organizations and, and the others in terms of the core competencies here. Uh, of driving and winning sales opportunities, managing and coaching sellers, and core consultative selling skills, right? Um, and, and there's a whole framework around consultative selling. There's so many different methodologies out there, but the key point is, is selling in a consultative manner is a huge differentiator uh, versus being uh, uh, just a purely a relational or purely a transactional types of seller, type of seller. Okay, so the key point there is that we want to make sure we're developing these skills and capabilities within our organization if we want to become uh, a top performing value driving organization. So another concept I, I want to share before we end in the next few slides is the whole concept of red ocean, blue ocean. So I'm sure many of you have heard of that book. Uh, some of you may have even read it. If you have, just let me know in the chat. I'd love to know uh, who all may, may have even read that book. Um, the concept behind that bo book is that uh, it was really more product fo focused. And the idea was you need to develop products that are uh, kind of pushing the frontier in terms of you know, differentiation and, and much better in terms of capabilities that your, your, your prospects or clients would actually need. Uh, and it's all really developing a, a really powerful offering that is very different from what you have in the marketplace. Right? And the challenge with that, though, is that it can be, you know, while effective if done right, uh, it can be very, very expensive to, um, to, to really have a strategy on building something just so completely new, so completely different uh, that you are in kind of blue ocean area, right? What we say is that it'd be great if you can do that. If you can, if you can get your, your, your product side of the organization uh, to build products and services that are so differentiated that's fantastic. Like just by their innate nature that they're so differentiated, that's, that, that's fantastic. But we don't all have the luxury of doing that, right? And, and competition is just so, so hot on our heels. Whatever we, new innovation we create, um, the amount of time that elapses before our competitor catches up is just shrinking, right? And so the concept that we have 
is it is actually still possible to do that. It is still possible to create a blue ocean uh, kind of opportunities um, as opposed to the red ocean opportunities, uh, but it's all in how you handle the sale, right? So we're not talking about rejigging your organization and, and R&D and all that, which you know, obviously if you can, you should, but we're not talking about making a wholesale change in your, in your organization to focus on your product to, to make it you know, so X, X amount better. What we're talking about is what if we were able to, through how we had conversations, through how we handle sales interactions, what if we were able to uh, get into the blue ocean area, right? And so what does that really mean? Well, if you look at this chart, if you look at this chart, it has the impact on the, on the left axis and on, on the bottom axis, we have differentiation. Most, most businesses are operating in this zone here, the, the, the red zone here, which is um, where the buyer has identified the need. And this is typically where you're responding to an RFP, right? The buyer has identified their, what they want, what they think they need, and they put out an RFP or an RFQ, a request for quote, uh, they think they know what they want, you know, and they send it out to all these uh, suppliers or vendors and they say, well, give us your best price. That's Red Ocean. By definition, that is Red Ocean. The, the, the buyer has defined the need. Um, and um, when you're in that game, it's, it's a race to the bottom because it's all about, you know, you can do this. They can do this. How much lower can you go? That's the, that's the extent of the conversation. Whereas with blue ocean uh, selling, it's really about working with the fire, we're working with the buyer to define a new possibility, right? Defining a new reality. Right? You're reshaping their need, and you're reshaping their need in a way that only you can, uh, only you can fulfill. Right? It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But if you can do it, then you are creating high added value and you're becoming distinctive in the minds of your buyers, right? And the further that you can push out the boundaries, the higher the margin that you can get, because now you've created a new need that only you can fulfill and you're creating dramatic, dramatically increased amounts of value that you can, that you can and should be paid for. And so on, if you can go back to that slide there. Yeah. I would say in the, um, like the buyer defined area here, and especially if it's in, in response to an RFP, this one, yeah. a lot of times they already have things established. They already know. So it's definitely a lot harder for you to get in and add value to yeah. it. So Absolutely. would you not say kind of the blue ocean area is a little bit more for maybe new prospects, not, not an RFP itself, or current customers. I would say that's probably a little bit easier to get into that area. Yeah, yeah, I mean, th that was kind of my point, right? Is, is if an RFP has come out, then you're essentially here, right? And it's very hard to go from here when you have an RFP to get into here, right? So. Uh, I would almost say that if an RFP has come out, it's kind of too late to try and even get to, to, to Blue Ocean. 
what needs to happen is you need to get in there before they even think about issuing an RFP. Because if you can, if you can define their need, then once you define they need their need and they issue an RFP, <clears throat> the only one who can fill that need is going to be you, right? So they might need to have an RFP process, but at the end of the day, <laughs> their only real choice is you, right? Because there's nobody else who's going to be able to come close to, to filling the need that, that, that's been defined in that RFP. Well, right. I would so say, I, yeah, in that case, though, if you're in that, then you're the one who's actually helped the buyer define the RFP. So you may exactly. have had yourself transition into the blue ocean, which makes it a little bit more difficult for people to get into there. Exactly. I mean, that the point here is that you want to, you know, you go in with, with, with selling with insight, right? When you sell with insight and you work with the buyer, you're creating this need. You're in blue ocean area, right? you can create a, a, a need in blue ocean, then when it comes down to them actually creating an RFP, then you are the front runner there, right? Um, so it's not, it's not to say that they would, wouldn't issue an RFP if you work with them and, and create a need for them in blue ocean, right? It's to say that you are well ahead of the pack um, you know, for organizations that, that even do have, like some organizations will not issue, will, don't need to issue an RFP and there's a need, uh, depending on product or service, there's a need and, and you know, you define that and you help them see the need and uh, they feel that there's a lot of value in, in closing that gap with you, uh, they'll go with you. They won't even issue an RFP. Now, other organizations will say, well, you know, yeah, you know, we, we want to do this, but we have to issue an RFP. And that's like, okay, fine. But when it goes out to the market, you're the only one that's going to be able to, to check all the boxes there because you define the need, right? So uh, you're golden. Does that answer your question, Kelly? I'm not sure if it does. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Okay. Uh, Hamza, can, sorry, can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, well, uh, this uh, blue ocean uh, inside selling, I just want to know, you know, no, it's, it's more of a, are you really uh, pointing on uh, concept selling or something which, you know, which is unconventional? Because the point is, you know, wherever, you know, you pitch and as Kelly said, they have their existing systems deployed, they have their existing needs being, uh, you know, completed with, with respect to that particular point of uh, solution which you are pitching in. So my question right. is, I mean, is it more of a, you know, unless you really, you really have uh, something out of the bound feature or out of, you know, something which he would really need it. So it's more of a consultative approach. It's more of a concept selling approach. And mm -hmm. how do you, how do you really, I didn't, you know, of course, by various research, you can do, you can identify the need, but mm -hmm. how do you create a need? So my question is this. Yeah, and that's and that's a great question. I I think we only have a few minutes left. Happy to take that offline because uh, it's a, big, a bit of a bigger uh, conversation. But just just a quick point on that, uh, Akshay, is that um, essentially what you need to do is you really need to understand you know, what's going on with the buyer, what's going on with their industry, and come up with a unique point of view uh, or unique way of solving their problem. 
And while other companies may be, you know, be, may be able to install the same software that you can, or may have this very similar uh, tools that, that, that you do, it's really around how do we make the connection between what it is that we can do uh, that is different and better in a way than what others can do. So they might be able to install the same software, but they may not have a full understanding of the scope and extent of the impact of installing that software and what the downstream impacts of installing that software are. They might not be able to uh, fix some of the problems that come up because they, you know, all they do is they focus on their little part of installing a, a piece of software. And, you know, um, if, if you want support on that, then they'll charge you an, an extra million dollars or whatever, right? But if you say, well, you know, based on our research, based on our insights, here is what the best organizations do in, in getting to X result. And I'm not, I'm not talking about just some functional aspect of installing, you know, SAP or this ERP software or whatever. What I'm saying is that, you know, you're looking at what is the business impact, right? Because every business is trying to accomplish certain kinds of results, right? So what are those key results and how does what you do play into that, right? And how does how you do it support them in getting to that goal better than anybody else can do, right? And if you work with them to understand their specific situation, their specific needs, chances are you will have a better understand, much better chance of winning uh, an opportunity with them than somebody else that comes in cold and has not done the, the, the work with the buyer of collaborating with them and understanding what their needs are and showing them newer and better ways of doing things. But, you know, Again, we don't have a lot of time. We only have a couple minutes left, but does that at least give you an idea? Actually, we can take it offline, but does that at least give you an idea of, of what we're talking about here? Yeah, of course. Thank okay. you. Good. You're welcome. All right. So the other aspect is obviously training, training our teams, because none of this is going to happen by itself. It's not going to happen by osmosis. Uh, the idea is, you know, if we, people are trained well, then they become more competent and if they're more competent they become more confident and if they're more confident that shows to the buyers right because buyers want to buy from people who are confident they're able to get you those results so sales training obviously has a huge impact on motivation and on results so the other aspect of completing this you know wheel if you could call it is developing continuously developing our skills and the skills of our sales sales people okay so if uh, anyone's interested, we're not here to sell, but if you're interested in learning how we can help you uh, with our coaching or training programs in terms of developing yourself or your team to get towards top performance, then just reach out to me. My, my information is here, and I will, we will be sending out the, the deck afterwards. Um, and that's it. I think we're just about on time. So, Kelly, I can hand it back to you. Perfect. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the time. It was uh, great to see everybody this morning. We have a couple of things going on next week. So there, we actually have three peer groups running. On Tuesday, we're talking about driving culture and engagement while in a virtual workplace. So if you're trying to figure out how to change things, I know culture and engagement are a little bit more um, hands-on and you want to figure out how to do that while everybody's together and especially things have changed. On Wednesday the 15th, we have E&Y, they're talking about valuation theory and uh, how to go about doing investor presentations. 
Thursday is our product management peer group and a fellow's coming on. He's talking about pricing in the digital era, so how to go about that. And then actually the following week, um, if you're interested, we have the CIO for the city of Richmond Hill and he's talking about kind of his journey and his evolution of being a CIO. But right now, what are the things that they're tackling through the city, especially with the, um, the current situation that we are under? So we look forward to seeing everybody else online. Ryan, is there anything else you needed to add there? Yeah, I was just going to, uh, Anthony Iannucci, the CIO of uh, Richmond Hill, I guess he's also taken on another position as well. He's also taken on uh, procurement. But uh, Anthony's story is pretty interesting because he was the CIO of the TTC. Um, so he's going to hopefully elaborate with some of the um, things that Toronto is doing, but I think he's also going to talk about other CIOs that he's friends with that what our CIOs doing in other major cities um, across Canada in the United States to, you know, mobilize the workforce and, um, you know, you know, what kind of impact this is actually having on uh, larger cities. So, um, you know, he's going to be very animated. So uh, get prepared for a great conversation with Anthony. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today and have a fantastic day. If you have any uh, questions or anything or any topics that you're interested in, please reach out to Ryan or myself and we're doing our best to get things. We're also trying to post everyday resources for you and your, your business. So have a fantastic day. Uh, happy Easter. Happy Passover. Um, did I get that right, Jeff? Yeah. Perfect. Uh, and everybody have a great, uh, a great week. Take care. Take care, everybody. Take care, Thank everyone. You. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. You're welcome. Yeah.